We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Before I get to the show, I wanted to mention Taste Partnerships. Often I get messaged by listeners of the show about ways to collaborate and work with Taste, and this is Taste, our podcast. Well, the answer is quite simple. You can email us at partner at tastecooking.com to request a media kit and to get in touch with our great partnerships director, Peter Romero. We're working on all sorts of cool ideas right now, and we'd love to hear from you. That's partner at tastecooking.com. Now on to this great episode. Our bottle itself has ended up in Architectural Digest. Like, there's been this weird irony of a plastic squeeze bottle with fun branding that looks beat up and wrinkled showing up in design magazines, you know, of, oh man, like, things you need to have in your kitchen. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome back Andrew Benin. The founder of Grazza, you know, that squeeze bottle olive oil that you have on your counter. They've got a big one and a little one. Took over the world by storm the past two years. We had Andrew on about a year and a half ago. He's back and we go over what he's been up to, which is a tremendous growth about the, you know, the, the mild controversy that he found himself in. He addresses it fully. And also we talk about food. He's the, one of the biggest food fans I know. He loves restaurants. He loves home cooking. And we really we get into some of the, his tastes and preferences and what he just loves about running what is easily the buzziest olive oil company around. It's a really candid talk with one of my favorite founders in food. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Andrew Bennon, welcome back to This Is Taste. What's up, buddy? I'm so excited to be back here. Yeah. Round one was a hoot, so I don't know where round two is going to go. Round two is going to go to some cool places, and I, I wanted to have you back. You asked me, like, you're like, Matt, why am I back? I mean, first off, Grazza is in our logo of our podcast. No big deal. NBD. And I, liked, I feel if you're on the logo. It's been a huge revenue driver for us. You're full of shit. <laughs> you're just... There's no need. There's, you're not even gassing me. You're just like trolling me at this point. No, I mean, I'm. I brought you back because um, I think I still cook with your product. I, I like other olive oils too. I just Susie Susie Karache makes a nice one. I make, I cook with hers. I I just wanted to catch up about a lot of things. CPG stuff. Uh, the world of food media. Anyways, I want to know you're in New York. You live in Spain. You have a six month old. You just went through harvest. We just had our whole team in Spain with us. We flew everyone out. So cool. And it was the best. It's actually cheaper to fly everyone to Spain than it is to meet up in New York. So, And it was amazing. I mean, we saw start to finish, harvest, crushing, bottling. Was the harvest good? I, I, you Last time you said it was hard. Yeah. It depends on who you ask, right? There's winners and losers even when times are tough. Um, I think that people conflate what a good harvest means. Uh, if you're expecting a 24% yield from the fruit on non-irrigated groves, like, yeah, you had a really, really bad last two years. Like, you did not produce olive oil at all. 
and in Spain specifically, a decent amount of the input of the product is non-irrigated. These are old farms that sell directly to co-ops. They have 40-year contracts. And that's the difference between producing 800,000 metric tons and 2 million. And it is true that once again this year, global olive oil production will not exceed global olive oil consumption. That's a problem. Uh, so prices have been extremely high. Um, on the flip side, there's a lot of politics involved in agriculture. Uh, you know, Spain saw olive oil consumption go down by 38%. Prices went up. So they just cleared VAT, which in Spain is 21% tax on olive oil, specifically at the grocery store. And everyone celebrates and they're like, ah, oh, the pricing is about to come down. Wrong. Pricing is actually going to stay exactly where it is because we need <laughs> consumption to go down for pricing to go down. So I don't know. It's been, it's been, we're in agriculture. Like we're not, there's some pretty bottle, like we're, we're deep in it. Thankfully we buy a lot of our oil in advance. So how was the, on the culinary side, um, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to press this harvest from December. What are you, what are you tasting? Are you tasting anything different? And second part is if I'm buying Grazza now in January, or even when I'm buying it in June, is it going to be a little different from the previous year? Um, yeah, I mean, it's different from every single farm. Um, so I just got my subscription Two days ago, it arrived at my house and it had new harvest drizzle in it, which is really exciting. We don't market it where we're like, old harvest, new harvest. Because yeah. actually, the better the oil is originally, the better it's going to hold up over time. So an early harvest olive oil, true early harvest olive oil, in one year, if it's kept in optimal conditions, is still going to be significantly better than a new harvest, late harvest olive oil. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of nuance. Um, yeah. My drizzle was from Italy, believe it or not. Graza this year, this is a change. I'm glad you said that because you were 100% Spain, Southern we Spain. We were 100% Cayenne Piqua. Cayenne Piqua. So now you, you're actually. This year, we've bought around 100,000 liters of Coratina from Italy. What's the percentage of that? Like, uh, very cute. small. Uh, it's from Bari. The reason we did that is because it's incredible olive oil. It's much more expensive than the piquado that we buy. Yeah. Italian olive oil, true Italian olive oil, is more expensive than Spanish olive yeah. oil. Um, so we bought some of that because we loved it. We needed it. We wanted to secure it. Um, and I got it at home yesterday and it's, uh, phenomenal. Um, we also bought piquado from outside of Jaén this year and we bought piquado from Portugal this year, from Alentejo. Which, if you live in Southern Europe, like, it's yeah. right there. The last interview, a huge point of pride was we were only Southern. We were, like, we could drive through the groves and, like, actually see all our olives. But now, you're spread out. Uh, what, are you feeling the same about your, your olive oil Big now? time. I mean, we're, we're picking the primo stuff yeah. from, from the people that have it. And building long-term relationships with suppliers in Portugal is a huge advantage. It's massive. Like yeah. we're eventually going to outgrow drizzle from Cayenne. Like we've gotten that, we've gotten that big. There's not enough early harvest olive oil 
in Chayen to just support Graza. So we need these relationships. And you can drive from my house four hours west and you'll get to Portugal or yeah. you'll drive four hours east and you'll get to Chayen. You can still drive there. Exactly. And, and also you weren't like overly leveraging the Spain part of Graza. Like you had to really talk to you. and We're not really... Spanish gastronomy 2.0. Yeah. So it made sense to actually look outside of uh, of this region you live in. Yeah. Let me ask you, when I was in Puglia, I, we drove all through the groves and we saw a lot of dead olive oil trees, olive trees where you make the oil. And we, it was shocking. It was sad. I mean, it was like, it was very sad. And so, and I didn't realize this ain't changing. So like, how bad is that going to get? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why olive trees and olive groves are dying. Some people just don't want to take care of them. Sometimes they're exposed to plague and other times they're not getting water. They can be restored, um, but it's an investment, especially where you were, majority is traditional harvesting, right? We just went to Spain and the first thing that my co-founder Alan saw after for four years hearing about the miles and miles and miles and miles of olive trees, the first thing he said is, how the hell do we touch all of these? It is incredibly inefficient and it is laborious and you have to go from tree to tree to prune and harvest. And there are billions of trees in this part wow. of the world. A lot of people have switched over to super high density farming, which is pretty much bushes of olive oil. It does not produce as good of an olive oil. Objectively, it does not, but it has massive benefits in terms of scale and, and caring, harvesting, too. And, harvesting yeah. and caring for the land and labor costs. Um, so, so yeah, that's probably what's going on in Bulia. It's really, really sad. Also depends on the olive varietal. A lot of the time, some olive varietals do not fruit every single year. Piqual does. That's mm -hmm. why people love it. If an olive tree like a piqual has a poor harvest, the tree wants to flower. It's such a nuanced process. Okay, great. You get to April, you get a great flowering. And one day it rains too much and it washes away the pollen in that exact window where you need that tree to pollinate and create fruit. You also lost the harvest. Well, I wanted to start with agriculture. Mostly if our listeners who haven't met you or haven't listened to your first episode, you're not just some like CPG bro who decided like olive oil was cool to put in a bottle. You actually care about the agriculture, you care about the product. And I'm going to link to the original episode in the show notes because it gets into your history working at Gramercy Tavern, your t your time at Warby Parker and like the way that you kind of blended the two. I'm not going to relitigate that just so I want to be clear. But I want to ask you, 2023, you went from being very cool and very young and very buzzy. You went from that buzzy moment to like literally being everywhere, it felt like. And what were some firsts that happened in 23 for you as a brand? I think we had our first kind of, we, we launched into mass retail. Yeah. And when you launch into mass retail, you become a data brand. There's no story to tell that isn't connected to numbers. There's no levers to pull that are not connected to numbers or dollars. And this was a first for us. You can't will a Walmart velocity from one to two. You can will a Whole Foods velocity from five to seven, right? Mm. Everything we do on social media, the food accounts that we interact with does correlate to a certain type of shopper. But 
at Walmart, it's not one for one. So there were a lot of firsts on what strategies we can apply to succeed. And also what expectations do we need to set? You know, when we look at our Walmart data, it's up and to the right, but it doesn't meet Graza's expectations, yeah. but it far exceeds the industry's expectations. So is that top line revenue top of the, uh, up and to the right and margin and EBITDA? I mean, margin, depending on which product. Right, it depends um, on the product, right? Depends on the product. But when we talk to other CPG brands or other strategics, like they're pulling out the data faster than we are. They're like, holy crap, you have 1,400% growth in the past six yeah. months? Yeah. Like that, that doesn't exist. The next closest person is 117. We're going to talk about strategics. I'm glad you brought up that word. We're going to talk about it near the end because I, I don't want to like weigh down like uh, the future of Grazza. But, yeah. but still- um, Future's big. Yeah, future's big. And and I want to ask you, is there a store count right now? We're, we're at, I think, 9,900 right now. Uh, we will finish the year in around 17,000. Holy shit. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. It's like 100%. Yeah. It's exciting because similar to beverage, like this is a distribution play. Once you're in the stores and you're selling two, three, four, 44, 100, whatever it is, bottles per week, that is exponential growth. It comes with its own challenges about how you invest as a business. Does it make sense to just invest in promotion and always be on promo at the right times, which we have to pay for at retailers? Or does it make sense to build a brand and invest in things that don't have a exact ROI? What's the answer? <laughs> or is it both? <laughs> I mean, you, you think about Rayos as an example. Yeah. I think about why someone over the past 10 years has always been willing to pay $8.99 for Rayos instead of $3 for Prego. And that's not because Rayos is on promo. That's because of the brand that is Rayos. Yeah. Our industry is pretty similar. It's a you know fine art on how to create it. But there, if we play a value game, we're always going to lose. There's always going to be a cheaper adulterated olive oil yeah. below us. I'm not talking about adulterated with other cooking fats or cut. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about EVOO is a laboratory test and a sensory panel. For a laboratory test to pass, you can do a lot of things to that product that won't come up. Mm -hmm. And you'll get an EVOO cert from a lab. On a sensory panel, someone should be able to suss out what's what. And speaking of that, wire cutter put you at number one. Number one in grocery, which was even cooler. Yeah. It wasn't like number one olive oil, number one olive oil brand. They're like number one olive oil, you can buy at grocery stores yeah. right now. What about retail advertising? I don't want to get too nerdy. It's not that kind of show, but do you invest in retail advertising? Is that part of uh, the, the model? Yeah, you have to. You have to. You have to show affinity and partnership to the big retailers. Of course you need to give them yeah. money and they need to give you support, outside yeah. support that they don't give to everybody. Um, I think it's it's so detailed. You find out that the brands that are private label suppliers to retailers are going to get preferred treatment. Of course they are because they're supplying another huge revenue stream. So you got to play. You got to be there. You can't, there's no shortcuts here. So Andrew, let me ask you, do you hit up the shoppy shops? The shoppy shops, we had Emily on the show. She didn't coin the term, but she made it popular. And, you know, it seems that Grazza in 23 became the go-to item in the shoppy shops of the land. We can talk about fair a little bit because I think that's definitely driving this. But do you like hit up places like Monsoon Market in Phoenix or places like Pop-Up Grocer in New York 
that have been big champions of your brand since day one? Yeah, we talk to them all the time. I mean, I think Monsoon Marketplace in order today. So the way we hit them up is, for example, we've launched three cooklets, we call them to date. There are mini cookbooks. Um, and we coined this term cooklet. And the thinking was, man, cookbooks are really big. I don't use them all the time because they just kind of sit on my cookbook shelf and they're big. I'm not going to bring them over to my stovetop all the time. Let's make these little cooklets that just end up in your knife drawer, your cutlery drawer. We made one that was all about salad dressings. We did it with Jess Damick after yeah. she launched Salad Freak. We launched Drizzle Freak, which was all about making salad dressings, which people whip up with a Pyrex, a little thing. You just need a little cooklet, little inspiration. We did another one with Natasha Pickowitz for desserts. Um, and the only people that get those cooklets besides our customers are our top shopping shops. And we give it to them for free. And we're like, listen, we created this amazing thing. It obviously costs money to publish. Use it in your store to drive Graza revenue for your store. We don't only use it for our online e-commerce store. We try to take care of people in different ways. We yeah. can't pay to promote at those places. In fact, they have more control over their margin than a retailer does because they can charge 20 or $24 for Graza where someone else charges 16 or 18. Um, but we give them amazing materials that no one else gets. Um, they're, they're still, you know, proudly the the most profitable out of home advertising in the world. <laughs> That's so cool to say that. And I know you're working on some other like printed projects. Um, let's talk briefly about FAIR, um, a platform that we've dabbled in a bit on the show and in, in the print uh, pages of Taste or the, the online pages. I feel like FAIR is that like juggernaut um, in terms of like bringing this, many of the founders and brands we talk about on the show to the market. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship with FAIR? A really strong one. Yeah. Um, are you like number one on FAIR? We are definitely one of the top brands yeah. on FAIR. We participate with them on improvements to their platform. FAIR is essentially, I want to call it a hyper curated, extremely efficient marketplace for what's cool in design, food, home goods in a way that even though individual stores in theory have access to all the same stuff, which I think is what Emily's article was kind of about. Yeah. Like, why is everything looking the same? Yeah. Uh, I don't think FAIR does a disservice to the suppliers or the stores. They really curate uh, what's the best for the customer. And there's still room for individual stores to purvey plateware relationships that aren't available on FAIR. Um, so for us, it's been extremely efficient way to to meet and interact with stores from Tempe to Seattle to Bangor. Can't have a direct relationship geographically with all these places. There's yeah. no yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no centralization. Fair enables that. Yeah, I uh, I want to have the fair founders on the show. I feel like it's super important. It's definitely hasn't had that big moment yet in terms of media. Um, let's talk about the collabs because this year you did some cool ones. We can talk briefly about the Deuce and Deuce and Oven Mitt, which I think is really neat. I love that brand. Uh, started in Brooklyn, very cool brand. Um, but like, let's really let's dive into your your collab with Ourobora. Paul Vogue was on the show recently. And um, I just, I love Ourobora and like my favorite print product of 20, 
three was your collaboration, your um, olive oil dry martini NA, which is now back available, apparently. I, it was sold out for a while, but it was now available. Fucking great. I love it. It's so good. I crushed them at our office. And there was a lot of dialogue of, this doesn't taste like an olive oil martini. You know that, right? And I was like, one, <laughs> be a bit more pragmatic. Like, let's all be a bit more positive because life is fucking hard. Two, like, it's delicious. Why are you not saying that? It tastes amazing. It tastes like vermouth. It has an olive oil flavor. It was delicious. And I could drink six of them and not get tired of it. Like that that's what it's all about, you know? I'm I wasn't trying to create the next Grey Goose non-alcoholic can beverage. And neither was Paul. We were trying to do something amazing, fun that's never been done before. And I mean, that that collab truly started out of a joke at a trade show. Paul said that. Truly. Said like that I met them for the first time. Paul and Maddie have amazing energy. I was over the moon. Graza's first trade show. We're not showing, but people People were excited and I yeah. was like, man, we should, well, what's a weird brand? It's a weird place that Graza can show up. And I was like, Royal Caribbean. Like, oh, that's where I want to be. And I want to be there with Ouroboro. I want to yeah. make, I want to get a canned beverage on a cruise ship. Forget about, because I remember when I worked at Casper, like, and Magic Spoon also, the gold standard for getting your product somewhere was the airline. I was like, you know, the airlines, eh, it's going to take forever. They're going to beat us up over dollars. Like, let's focus on the cruise ships. They're making a comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the idea. Royal Caribbean never responded, and we still did it. It's great. I'm just going to say I like the – it does taste like a martini personally. There's a, It has the, the gin astringency, the bitterness, the bite is there. And, of course, the olive oil, um, the smoothness, what you'd like in an olive oil martini – um, I, I haven't drank in many years, so I don't really remember that too much, but I feel like it hit me in a way that if I'm going to be at the end of the day and I want to refresh the palate before having dinner, I'm going to drink one of those. Yeah. Really fun collab. And then Deuce and Deuce and you do these oven mitts that are really neat. You're selling them on your site. Yeah. I mean, Deuce and Deuce and is bigger than people think for the team that they have yeah. and for the studio that they have. I mean, they're one of MoMA Design Store's top selling brands. Oh, sure. They show up in kitchens. Yeah. And what's cool about that is our bottle itself has ended up in Architectural Digest. Mm -hmm. Like there's been this weird irony of a plastic squeeze bottle with fun branding that looks beat up and wrinkled showing up in design magazines, you know, of, oh man, like things you need to have in your kitchen. We felt like such a farce. We were like, damn, we didn't design Grasso for that, you know? No. Um, but but Deucin Deucin definitely shows up in people's kitchens and it was thoughtful. It was like, you know, we don't want to launch something that screams Grasa. Yeah. Because once brands try to take over people's homes and go outside of their domain, I think they've lost it. They've lost control. <laughs> they, 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 they're pulling the wrong strings. Speaking of squeeze bottle, last April... You kind of lost your cool and posted some stuff on LinkedIn about a brand that was a kind of a copycat brand, at least for the squeeze bottle. Long story short, the New York Times picks this story up. I believe we texted that day. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, the New York Times is like writing this story. You responded in a couple different ways. Not going to relitigate, but I will link to a, an article that kind of does. I want to know, Andrew, and thank you for answering this question. Like, what did you learn from kind of stepping in it a little bit? Oof. I learned... A lot. Um, I injected negativity into the Graza organization. 
that is not my job. That is not my primary value as one of the founders and leaders of this organization. In fact, my primary job is to leave all my negativity and stress out of the office and come and be motivational and inspiring and supportive and give my team resources to continue to grow the brand. And this was the exact opposite of that. Um, was I passionate in my expression? Yes. But I injected negativity and I learned a lot from that. And from a product perspective, I do think that um, I had a hiccup in my thinking uh, that Graza is just a squeeze bottle. And I had to go through that experience to re-engage with some truth that we are so much more than that. And since then, other people have put olive oil in squeeze bottles, bigger brands yeah. like California Olive Ranch. And, you know, for us, the next team meeting that we had was let's not focus on what other people are doing that we have done. Let's focus right now on what we have that they don't. And let's lean into that this year. Let's double down on everything that we know we have that other people do not. And let's focus on creating more things that other people are not expecting. Let's innovate faster than people can join on to our packaging movement. Um, and obviously there's a positive out of every single experience to glean. I'm making it seem really nice. This was not an easy thing to get through. There was a lot of <laughs> crisis PR. I mean, my uncle did not know about your brand until he texted me the link and was like, this seems interesting. I, I mean, like, that's an all press is good press moment right there. I mean, if I'm, if I'm counting, you know. <laughs> listen, there is definitely an argument for that. Does it help that you're in 9,900 stores and you're going to be in 17,000 at the end of the year? Does it help like when you see these like copycats? Does it kind of help that like you kind of won in a way? These numbers are undeniable, 1,100% and up and to the right. Does that help make this copycat culture like, do you, can you just like block it out? We really don't think about it. In <laughs> fact, when we see it, we're like, hmm, what's what's nice about that bottle? Like, hmm, this this feels like a nice feature. We're we're treating it as, yeah. you know, how can we improve? But the last thing that we think about right now is squeeze bottles. Squeeze bottle was a day one thing. It's continued to serve us so well. It is a quick way to identify our product on social media. And it's a quick way to feel us in a grocery store that we are different and differentiated, but our team is not thinking about squeeze bottles. We've already done that. We already have that. We're on to the next. I'm really, I, I really, Andrew, I appreciate this point of view. I think 14 months since I last spoke to you on the podcast, it's like real growth. And I think at that time, we did talk about the squeeze bottle copycats off mic mostly, and you were not in that mindset. Yeah. Yeah, it sucked. It sucked. But um, I think came out wiser, more humble, more, yeah. more reserved. And I'm not going to incite the public domain <laughs> at all. I'm going to email our customers to tell them that we just found an amazing olive oil in Portugal and I'm excited for them to treat yeah. it. When you, we spoke last, you were really adamant that you're an olive oil company and, and only an olive oil company and you're focusing on two SKUs and some cool collabs, but very small. And is that still the case as we go into 24? Are you still a, a, a pretty much a two product brand? Uh, to this date, we are still. Um, we we have some fun things coming out this year that I wouldn't call evergreen products, but 
our brand and our platform and our operations are strong enough to say produce 20,000 or 30,000 of something that is in a different category and see how it goes. Um, we've, we've, we've earned that right, I think, and uh, we'll do it and we'll study. We're going to listen to our consumers. Um, and we do have some really fun stuff coming out in olive oil that will make us mm. more than two skew company, but it will uh, knock people's socks off for sure. Um, so, so listen, like we don't have a product development team. We haven't gotten there yet. We don't have a product development pipeline where we have four different things that have a 12 month lead time that we are working on right now. We have a lot of ideas. We have a lot of talented people, but we are pretty damn focused. Like Graza's sizzle and drizzle will be a $140 million business pretty quick. Wow. Graza's sizzle and drizzle, right? So we have to stay focused on that. If you take your eye off of that prize and you find another $2 million opportunity, but you lose the $140 million one, yeah. you really stepped in it. All right. I had Brian Rudolph on. He's the founder of, of Bonza. And I asked him this question and I'm curious um, what you think. Uh, does Grazza ever get into like QSR into the restaurant world? I mean, you got this branding, you got this product, you are really engaging with chefs you have chef investors you people love your brand and it feels like a natural fit would be like to do some grazza restaurants um <laughs> that's funny i mean this is something that we're seriously thinking about i think it's as simple as there are so many restaurant pop-ups 98 percent of them are a flop they are i think so okay the two percent that aren't are incredible memorable Perfect. You mean like the actual, sorry to interrupt, the, the flop meaning when you go to it, the food is... It's overhyped. It's yeah. on every single publication and then there's a line and they're only serving things that they haven't yet figured out how to perfect, right? The beauty of certain restaurants like Birdie's in Austin is that they have a limited menu. It's small. It rotates a little bit, but they are masters at what they sell. And you go there every single time and it's going to be amazing. You know that. A restaurant pop-up is a little bit more risky. It's a team of people figuring out how do we create this? What are the nuances in it and how do we perfect it? So I think if Graza launches up a restaurant pop-up, it's like it's a hard thing to do, to do right. Um, but we like hard things. Yeah. We like we like trying to figure out a way to be that 2% of awesomeness. And we'll continue to take those risks to thread that needle as long as we can afford so it. So you're saying that a pop-up is not good, but you might do a good one, but what about like a brick and mortar? The brands that figure out a way to have the strongest relationship with the culinary community that perseveres are winners. Being on menus is is a separate concept. And you know we, we are on some menus now. There are restaurants that have done like an olive oil forward menu yeah. with Graza and, and it's really fun. It's not scalable. And because it doesn't have, you know, for example, uh, a cava attached to it, which is, you know, publicly traded, like when Sweetgreen switched to extra virgin olive oil, like it was news, you know? Um, and we have to balance things that we do that are local and exciting and cool, but have limited visibility to things that we focus on that have national visibility and realistically, those are what are going to turn into increased velocities in retail. Yeah. And in year one, everything was about being cool. And then we learned, we actually surveyed our employees. Um, How many now? 
Uh, we're eleven full time. We have we have some contractors. We're like fourteen yeah. contractors. Um, we asked them two reasons why they're proud to work at Grasa. Reason number one was I believe in the product. That was the most unanimous. And like we we had offered up like if it's if it's money if it's equity if it's growth like be honest like everything was on the table. Reason one was that, and reason two was I get to work somewhere where we do cool shit. That is what the modern employee wants. If it was just about money, they can leapfrog and get 10K somewhere else. I left Warby and got a job at Casper because I had brand equity. They can say I worked at Graza and they can get a job paying them more at an increased position at the next food startup making, you know, keto donuts, you know? But they they don't because this is a platform to do interesting things. And that's what people want. Yeah. Let's get into that strategic conversation. So it, like that's a little wonky term, but we're talking about the big boys, we're talking about the general mills, we're talking about the guys who buy and acquire brands for either um, innovation or money or obviously money, but like versions of money. And um, I believe I asked you in the last interview about um, exiting and you're like, fuck no, I like, live in Spain. I love this stuff. How do you, what's your discourse with the strategics right now? Do they call you? Yeah, we've got we've got quarterly calls with a few. Everyone wants information. Let yeah. me, let's touch base quarterly. Keep me in the loop. For us, it's pretty simple. Like if you can enable us to do what we do best, then we'll talk to you. We'll continue this conversation. If you're gonna help us finance our olive oil purchasing to maintain this quality, which is a challenge for Graza, right? Like olive oil is expensive right now. What does that mean for a brand and where could a strategic help? We'll do around $44 million in revenue this year, right? To do that, we have to buy a lot of drizzle. To do that, we have to pay 100% down for that product. That is more than $5 million out the door. That's how hard it is to be a young business trying to serve up the product quality that we have and sticking behind it. And those wire transfers, like you literally have to just like send send more than five million dollars. Yeah, out. if people can help us, we listen. And the people that really want to get involved with Graza know that they can unlock future growth by helping with something so simple, right? So, yeah, we're having those conversations. Um, some of the big strategics are asking us to collaborate on products together for twenty twenty five. We have we have something to learn from them. I think I think the big food companies are incredible. When I, when I go to Target and I see a wall of Campbell's soup, I'm like, God, that's so beautiful. If you have figured out the store in a store mm. in food, you are a legend because store in a store very much exists in beauty. You can walk through the aisles of Target or of other you know multi-channel grocers and you'll feel it. Brands have a presence. If you get it done in grocery, you're a legend. If you get your space, your real estate, it's like building a little house. It's like Monopoly. You're coming back next year. We're doing this annual. I love these conversations. We can maybe talk about some new products. Sounds good. Andrew, and this is Taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. The best fruit. Dragon fruit. My God, that's a good one. I've never really had good dragon fruit in like the lower 48 I've had in Hawaii. The worst vegetable. Turnip. The best dessert. I should say vanilla ice cream with olive oil and Malden. I won't. That was my next question. So there you go. You've answered the best thing to pair with olive oil. We'll see. Best dessert. 
Basque cheesecake. Great, 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 great. I'm gonna keep you saying great because we've written about it. It's been like this this dish, this dish that's like taken over. It's huge in Korea. It's massive in Korea. But you're live in Spain mm-hmm. and you're not sick of it. Nope. The best New York City restaurant right now. Or your favorite. We'll call it your favorite. Holy guacamole. Oh my God. I mean, this is to me, this is about consistency. Uh I like Barbette. I really like Barbette. Because they don't try too hard to make you feel good about eating vegetables, but then also give you like a confit duck, you know? Yeah. Like you're not like, ah, oh, I should get the vegetables, but I also want, like, there's there's something for everyone Wait, there. so this is the Barbette in Brooklyn? Yeah. Smith Street. Yeah, yeah, my old neighborhood. I was like, you're talking about places in my old neighborhood. Oh, shit. Um, your favorite American fast food chain? Taco Bell. Yeah. Your favorite city outside America to visit for food? Not to center this conversation in America because you don't live here full time, but I am going to do that anyways. Bologna, Italy. Ooh, yeah, great. Emilia Romagna, let's do it. What do you like about it? I like it in the fall. I like it when there's a lot of pumpkin ravioli. I like it when it's a little cold and you're getting a nice tortellini and brodo. I like it. I really like it. I like the real green lasagna. That's what I like. A couple more, a cuisine you would like to learn more about. Japanese, yeah. Like, it's such a weird thing that I love eating, but no very little about preparing and uh yeah really yeah i would love to i'd love to learn more graza just got into h mart you know how many olive oil brands are at h mart <laughs> two last one your favorite sandwich okay shout out to the broccoli reuben from court street grocers yeah. because i've never felt so greasy eating vegetables and so happy i love the broccoli reuben <laughs> my favorite sandwich is probably a muffaletta it just is. It's got everything. Like I like a lot of meat and a lot of spice and a lot of pepper. You know, it's a great choice. I want it all. Andrew Benin, thank you so much for joining this taste. It's been really fun. I've had a great time. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.